Hello to you all. This is David Thompson speaking to you from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia, Canada. If you're thirsty for reality that can only really satisfy the very core of one's being, then you've come to the right place. I'm here to minister to you out of the Holy Spirit of God those words which are from God to you as an individual and to the corporate bride of Christ, the Almighty's one, the one true God. As commanded in 1 Peter 4.11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we are not to speak our own words, but God's words out of the Spirit of God. In this regards, I therefore also will seek God's leading to a chapter of the Word of God, the Bible, that I will find by the casting of lots each time I bring a message. In some cases, it's the Holy Spirit leading me by impression. And then what I will do is meditate on that chapter for half an hour, including the taking of brief notes. And then immediately after, I will begin to share the message as I have just begun to do now so that we can come to hear what God would be saying to us as individuals, including myself, to those that he is calling out of darkness into light and to the corporate body of Christ. This is in order to bring forth and prepare people individually and corporately for their ultimate everlasting and ever-enlarging fulfillment for which they were created and for which all creation exists, namely the marriage of the Almighty's one true God to his corporate bride that will conquer all corruption and go on forever and ever in increasing government of ever-enlarging expression of creative love that's without corruption or without death. So I am here to share with you today from where I was led through the casting of lots by the sovereign power of God. And I was led today to Zechariah 14, which is a very prophetic scripture in one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament or in the pre-Christ scriptures. First, I will read this chapter. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city." Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, 
which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel, yea, and ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzzah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night. But it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. <clears throat> and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place. From Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Haniel unto the king's wine press. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall be no more utter destruction but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongues shall be consumed away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance, and so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, and of the ass, and of all the beasts that shall be in these tents as this plague. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles." And it shall be that whoso will not come up of the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to the feast 
of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. And the pots of the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seethe therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. I do not know what the Holy Spirit will speak or reveal to me personally through this passage of Scripture. But this is a very prophetic passage of Scripture. And in the first section from verses 1 to 6, it is describing the events that will happen when the Lord returns back to rule upon the earth. It is very clear from this passage that all the nations will come against the nation of Israel and in particular over the issue of Jerusalem. And more and more so, that is where the focus of contention is the strongest even at this time where we see in history many nations coming against Israel and in particular over Jerusalem, saying it's their possession. And it's God that gathers all these nations against Jerusalem. There are other verses such as it says in Thessalonians that God shall cause them strong delusion to believe a lie that they may all be condemned who loved not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. When people choose to be close to what they deep inside know is the truth, there's a hardening process in the heart. In the center of decision in the soul, the center of volition, we are beings that are created with the capacity to love. As such, we are not created as robots. Rather, we are the source of our own action. We are self-originating. Therefore, we are responsible for our choices, for what we create with our soul, from our heart. And so when there is a choice to go against what we deep inside have an innate knowing is right, there is this hardening process. And it can come to the point where God will say, okay, 
you're making those choices. I'll give you all you need to justify your choices so you feel totally comfortable without the awareness of your conscience bothering you anymore. It says that there will be those that will sear their conscience with a hot iron in their desire to choose their own delusions and also deceive others with their delusions. That's obviously not an exact quote, but that's in, in essence what one of the scriptures says. In this passage of scripture, it's when the, it gets to such a point that the mi mi military might of Israel is broken and half of the cities, it says here, goes into captivity and the houses are rifled. That word rifled means plundered in the original Hebrew. At that point, the anger of the Lord boils over. Now God's anger is not like ours. His anger is a righteous anger. In fact, God is love. And his love is so pure and has such absolute integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love. His love is that quality that always chooses out of his own free volition the highest lasting good onto the highest lasting good which is God himself. This is the holiness of God. This is the defensive aspect of the being of ultimate reality, the very source of the universe and of all life and creation. As it were, it is this ultimate negative. But that is the foundation out of which this creativity of love can be without corruption can be fully expressed. This love that is so pure is fully expressed out of a foundation of absolute holiness that will not tolerate corruption. It is only such a quality that can contain unlimited power and life without being corrupted by it or self-destructing and is thus indicative of being the very source of unlimited power in life that is contained in absolute goodness because there is no destructibility in it. It is ever creative in its expression in greater and greater enlargement of fulfillment in its itself being God and in creation through which God reciprocates with the creation in fulfillment, and the creation finds ultimate fulfillment and destiny only in God, because all things, as it says in the Word of God in Revelations 4, were created for His pleasure. And in Romans, it says, through Him and to Him and for Him are all things. And so, God's being has this foundation that is a blazing fire of judgment but is transcendent in this total creativity without corruption to the degree that he chooses 
to have a corporate bride, a plan to bring forth a corporate bride that will be brought into total harmony and oneness with his holiness. This is through a process that God has foreknown even before man was created in the fact that he created and allowed, I shouldn't say created, but allowed and also placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. I'm not going to be going into much detail about this, but I'm laying a foundation for an understanding of God's judgment. And so God's ultimate expression of his love in wanting a corporate bride is revealed in that he had the moral capacity within himself to take the judgment of all creation upon himself, which he did in the center of history, in the full expression of himself into this time and space realm. The word expression means son, and the full expression of himself was in Jesus Christ and is in Jesus Christ in the time and space realm. That is God in government in the time and space realm. And it was through Christ that God humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffered more than you, a mere creature, so that you could repent and receive forgiveness of your sin and sins through asking Christ to forgive and cleanse you of all your sins. Asking God through Christ to be the Lord and Savior of your life. In this passage of scripture here, we see that the integrity of God's love is in an anger, but it's very patient. It waits until these nations literally are the verge of annihilating his people. Half the city is rifled. And at that point, the Lord goes forth and fights against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And it says here that his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and that there will be a splitting of the Mount of Olives in half, no doubt by a very powerful earthquake. And this is corroborated by other scriptures as to the sequence of events. For example, in the book of Revelations, it mentions in the last part of Revelation 16 that the cities of the nations fell. And it goes on to describe it. I could briefly go to Revelation 16 and just show you that particular verse I'm describing. And there are other verses in Revelations on this. But in 16, towards the end, we have this description. And it says this, and there was a great earthquake such as was, this is in verse 18, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great, and the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup 
of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And it goes on to say, And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. This is an enormous earthquake to cause the cities of the nations to fall. And it is described here in another scriptures. Another scripture that describes this earthquake is Isaiah 24, where much of that chapter is describing a very powerful global earthquake. And I will only read a few verses of that description in Isaiah 24, where we read the fallway, starting at around verse 17. Well, I, I think I'll start a little later. I'll start um, with verse 19. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are in high and the kings of the earth upon the earth and they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison. And after many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. And it describes many other things earlier in this chapter. For example, it shows what happens to God's people in the midst of this earthquake in verse 14 to verse 15. And they shall lift up their voice and they shall sing for the majesty of the Lord and they shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires. This is total destruction around them and yet they're praising and worshiping God. Even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. We'll go back to our theme chapter, which is Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. In this passage, the time has come when the Lord returns. And they know now that there is an earthquake fault in the Mount of Olives, a major fault. So this is also substantiated by the fact that they have found a major fault going through the Mount of Olives. And here we see the description of what will happen, that this will be an extremely powerful earthquake, as described in the other passage, greater than ever has been on the earth. And it says in God's words that he will shake all things that are shakable, that what is unshakable might remain. And then the kingdom of God will come onto the earth. And so it describes here that the feet of the Messiah shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. 
Now also in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 to 10, is part of this description. And it says this, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me. This is God speaking. And God says, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadiram in the valley of Megadon. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart and their wives apart and the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart, and it goes on. And they have also now managed to trace down through genetics the various lineages. And if you don't know anything about it, go and do some research upon it. They've found the, the, those that are the true descendants of the tribe of Levi and other people. So this is all becoming a reality even through what science is finding, they're able to find the various lineages, and no doubt they will have found the lineage of David and so on, as indicated here in this passage. But the thing to, that I want to focus on here, this is what happens. They look upon me, God, whom they, the children of Israel, pierced when Christ was crucified on the cross, which is the full expression of God and government into the time and space realm. That's what it says in Hebrews 1, I believe, verse 4. It says that Christ is the full expression of the Father. And maybe in this case, it is important for me to point out that verse. So we will turn to Hebrews chapter 1. And I believe it's around verse 4, if I am right. Okay, it's just before, it's verse 3. When it's describing Christ, it says this, who being the brightness of his glory, that is of God, the Father, which is the government of God and personage that is beyond the time and space realm, and is the originator of all things. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat on the right hand of the majesty on high. So we see that Jesus Christ is the expression of God into the time and space realm, the full expression of God, the Father. We just go back to Zechariah now, where we were. And in this passage of Scripture, we see that there's a real mourning when they realize that the one that they were rejecting as the Messiah as a nation is in fact their Messiah. The one that 
in the time when Christ died on the cross was crucified by their religious hierarchy. And it took all this pressure to bring them to birthing as a nation into relationship with God where there was a deep circumcision that pierced their heart when they realized God's love for them. In fact, if anyone has read the account of Joseph in the book of Genesis, it is a moving and very emotional story. As we know, the 12 tribes of Israel came from the sons of Jacob, and these sons were jealous of Joseph, one of the sources of the 12 tribes of Israel. To the point, because his father favored him above all the others and because he said he had these dreams that showed he would be ruling over all people, to the point that they sought to kill him, but their brother Reuben spared his managed to convince them to sell him to the slaves. And then they told their father that he was killed by an animal. And we know the story that Joseph was sold into Egypt and experienced going through hardship. But he, God prospered him and he became a servant of a top leader in the country, but then his wife tried to get him to go into bed with her and he refused, and so she pulled his coat off and then claimed that he raped her, which was totally a lie. And so then he gets an even worse trial where he's put in prison, but he still maintains his integrity and his faith in God because he has this great fear of God. And through time, people find that he can interpret dreams accurately And then this comes to Pharaoh when Pharaoh is very troubled about a dream. And, of course, we know the story that Joseph gave the interpretation of the dream as being this drought that would come for seven years after seven years of prosperity. And so Pharaoh made him the second man in command of all of Egypt. But then his brothers come for food in Egypt, and we know the story. They come before Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph. And then Joseph behaves very severely with them, and he troubles them by confusing them of being spies and so on. He knows who they are, but he's given them a hard time for what they did to him. And he won't let one of the sons go unless they bring back their father. And so it's a long story, but the end of it is this, that Joseph invites them to have a meal with them. The king of Egypt, after accusing them, and they're wondering what's going on, and he, Joseph can no longer contain himself. He goes into another room and breaks down in tears and starts crying. And then he comes back out and he says to them, I'm Joseph the one that you sold into Egypt. I'm your brother Joseph that you sold into Egypt. And they are trembling and in fear. And they fall down with great fear and trepidation, and he makes it clear to them that he chooses to forgive them. And of course, you can imagine 
what they felt inside. They felt that they deserved the judgment of God, that they deserved this unworthiness, they de- that they were unworthy, that they deserved God's judgment. And so in this passage in Zechariah, there's a similar scene corporately happening as a nation as they begin to recognize that the troubling that they've been experiencing that's cornering to them to the point where Jerusalem is mostly taken. And at this point, the Lord returns himself and reveals himself to them. And they are in bitterness mourning because there's such a deep circumcision happening in their heart. And true conversion involves a deep circumcision in the heart. It involves the awareness of the holiness of God, that is the integrity of his love, that we deserve judgment, that we do not deserve the mercy of God. But it also realizes and accepts that out of that foundation of holiness is the provision of God's mercy. And so in great humility and awe receives this positive aspect of the being of God and creativity that can go on without corruption, fully manifested in the toning work of Jesus Christ on the cross to bring forth a corporate bride, the ultimate economy of love that will go on and rule forever and ever and ever expand without corruption in greater and greater realms of fulfillment and expression. And so there's a deep conversion that takes place as they look upon God whom they have pierced the full expression of God into the time and space realm and personage, Jesus Christ. The Almighty's One describes God and is in the Hebrew Elohim, which is exactly what that word means, Almighty's One. And it shall come to pass in that, and so we have this description here, and this shaking that is bringing forth the kingdom of God. And it says that it will be like a stone that is cut out without hands from a mountain that then fills all the earth. And it says the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth even as the waters cover the sea to the point that even the lion will lie down with the lamb and creation will no longer have this principle of rebellion and corruption in it that causes destructiveness because there will be the awareness of who God is. It also describes this in Isaiah 25, 6 to 7. So we'll turn to Isaiah 25, 6 to 7 and just read this description there. In Isaiah 25, we were already a little bit on Isaiah 24, but this is Isaiah 25, 6 to 7. And it says, And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, and a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain, speaking of the Mount of Olives, the place also known as Mount Zion, and he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory. 
and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. So, there's this veil that is over all nations that is the root cause of people being blinded from the truth and the very cause of death itself because it says that this face of the covering that's cast over all people, this veil, will also involve him swallowing up death and victory, which initially happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here we find that there's the conquering of corruption. Of course, in Romans chapter 8, it says that there will be the manifestation of the sons of God that will liberate the whole creation. Of course, that is when they are converted to be his sons and daughters, to be his corporate bride, as we see this conversion being described initially in Zechariah chapter 14. So we'll turn back to Zechariah chapter 14 here. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea in summer and in winter. And it gives many details of great blessing that follows, which was also just described in what I read when it described the wines on the lees. And the Lord is saying, to us as his people, that we are to be those that are be, to be preparing ourselves to be in a place of reciprocation and fellowship with God so that when everything around us shakes, we can have his life come forth in us in praise and bring liberation so that the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And God's judgment and his wrath at this time comes with great severity, severity on those that have come against Jerusalem, that have come against God's people in rebellious belief systems that have motivated them and justified their rebellion against God and their jealousy against the righteous and their prosperity, even as, in a sense, Joseph's brothers were all jealous against him and came against him, and yet God showed mercy unto them. But he will judge those that refuse his mercy. And we see it described here in verses 12 to 15, where we read, And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet and their eyes shall consume away in their holes and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. And he goes on to say that there will also be great tumult from the Lord among them so that they start fighting each other in verse 13. But what is significant in the midst of this amazing return of Christ is a verse 
that says in verse 9 here, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. How is it that before this time, there wasn't one Lord and his name was not one? What is the word name? The word name has the understanding of the expression of who God is to someone out of himself or to his creation. It is very, in some ways, uh, related to the name soul, which means life, which has the understanding of who one is, really is in themselves and to themselves. If you look up the deep meanings of the Hebrew, that's what you find it means. It is a consciousness of self in a, a positive sense of who you are as opposed to not being someone else. But name has the understanding of who you are expressed to others. And so God's name will be one, will be revealed as the one true God to all the world at that time. There are those that accuse Christians of believing in three gods. But those that really know the word of God and have a relationship with God know even by revelation in the spirit that there is only one God. There's not three gods. As it says in the word of God, Hear, O Israel, for the Lord our God is one. Now that has a oneness with understanding of plurality in the oneness. If you look it up in the Hebrew, it's a chad. But it, it's a oneness that is totally one. And God is not three gods, as some people believe that some of us that know Christ believe. There's people that say, oh, the Trinity is so complicated. But that's what man in his natural mind says. But if you had any understanding of the scriptures, it's not complicated to understand that God is one. And it can be explained simply like this. God must govern every dimension of existence. And the ultimate dimensions are beyond time and space, into time and space, and filling all space. God as the Father, the word Father means originator. God as the Father is the originator. Father also has the understanding and government of seeing the end from the beginning. In other words, being beyond the time and space realm. So we have God and government in personage beyond the time and space realm as the originator. He is expressed in personage into creation in the time and space realm as the Son. The word Son means expression. And Jesus Christ is also called the Word of God, and the word Word basically means expression. So that's an understanding that God as the originator that sees the end from the beginning, governs within the time and space realm by expressing himself into it. And that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And God also fills all things, for he is the source of all things. And so he is omnipresent by his Spirit 
in the Father and in the Son, filling all things by his Holy Spirit. And able anywhere to be anywhere and be multiple places at the same time doing as he pleases in his creative acts or his judgments against that which is in rebellion or is destructive. And so we have an understanding that there is only one God, and God is called Elohim, which means the Almighty's one. And so at that time, the whole earth will recognize that Jesus Christ, who was pierced, is indeed God. And they will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will know that there's not any longer this false perception of somehow there being three gods that some people have started in one way or another to believe. And there has been distortion that way. And I'm not going to get into all of that. I am here to describe this passage of Scripture and what God would be saying by his Spirit from it. Now, the other thing is in verses, verse 16, where it describes not only... there. I should mention, first of all, that there is not only this judgment upon the people that have come against Jerusalem, but even when Christ reigns on the earth... He allows people to have their own free choice and warns in this passage of scripture against the nations that refuse to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And that is described here in verses 17 where it says, And it shall be that whosoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord shall smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So what is this Feast of Tabernacles that will happen when Christ returns to rule upon the earth? It's described here in verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This is also as described in Isaiah 66, 23. And it says there, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before the Lord. In fact, if you want, I can go to that passage and just read a little bit more. And it says, And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the man that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. That is pretty powerful description. So going back to Zechariah chapter 14. In this passage of scripture, we have the Feast of Tabernacles. 
which is also clearly described in Leviticus 23:33 to 44. In fact, even the Orthodox Jews and Jewish people that are very religious believe the Feast of Tabernacles is not only for them, but it is for all nations because they know about this passage of Scripture. And so there's great significance in understanding why the Feast of Tabernacles would be so important. I will briefly describe some of the main things that are involved in the feast, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. It is a time of bringing in the first fruits from the harvest and celebrating the maturity of the harvest. And so people bring all of this abundance of corn and wine. In Leviticus 23, it describes two aspects to the Feast of Tabernacles. One of them is a time of sobriety and mourning. The other is a great jubilation as you're bringing in all of these wonderful benefits of the harvest to God with thankfulness, with an expression of thankfulness for him blessing the fruit of the earth. In fact, there is a scripture in Hosea that describes this, which I believe is around Hosea chapter 3, that also is indicative of this time when Christ will reign on the earth. And so I will quickly go to that passage and try to bring out that verse. If I can find it here. I know it is very prophetic in these few uh, verses in Isaiah, Hosea 3, also Hosea 4 possibly. And... Uh, I do not know. I don't know exactly where it is, but I can tell you what those verses basically say pretty close to what they actually say. It's probably Hosea 2. I'll try that. Um, yeah. Okay. Here it is. I believe it probably is Isaiah, Hosea 2. Yes, it is. It says this, describing this time when Christ will return. And in that, this is Hosea chapter 2, verse 18. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowl of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. Remember that this veil is broken that is over all nations so that the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea with his very presence, so that even the lion lies down with the lamb as described in Isaiah. And then it goes on here and it says, and I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. Thinking of Israel being birthed corporately to be his bride as they're brought to this place of deep circumcision in their heart where they look on him whom they have pierced who opens his pierced hands to them and says as Joseph did to his brothers I receive you I receive your repentance and so God is expressing the love that he will have not only for Israel that will look upon him for whom 
Look upon him whom they have pierced, but also for all who have received Christ as their Lord and Savior and become part of his corporate bride of the commonwealth of Israel. And it says this, that the effect of this relationship where God will have such a deep conversion in his people that they will become one with him and they will recognize that the Lord is one and that there's one Lord over all the earth will also have this effect as it describes in Hosea here, chapter 2, verse 21. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens and they shall hear the earth and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil and they shall hear Jezreel. Now the word Jezreel means it will be sown of God and I will sow her unto me in the earth and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. Speaking of the children of Israel, as they look on him whom they have pierced, and I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. And so we see the effect of God's presence in dwelling his people results in an overflow of his presence to the creation. So that God hears a vibration from his people that is reflected in even the things that he has created. And so in his hearing, as he hears the heavens, the heavens are receiving the vibrations that they hear in the earth. And believe me, they've discovered in particles physics a solid fact that there are relations in particles that have no time. They instantly are affected. They shot two particles at the speed of light in opposite directions in an experiment many years ago and discovered that their reactions, these were particles that were the same, part of the same thing. I don't know how to explain it. They reacted instantly. There was no light differential. And they know that, that there is these qualities in particle physics. And here we have the heavens hearing the earth. The vibrations that are harmonious unto God and pleasing to him. And the earth is hearing the corn and the wine. Do you know that even they've discovered, and you can look this up, I saw a cardiologist talk for an hour and a half who is a renowned cardiologist to another medical doctor on grounding. Do you know that there is positive health benefits from grounding? Look it up on the internet. There are construction companies in Europe that do not allow their workers to be on the job doing work unless they walk for a half an hour with their bare feet in wet grass because the electron flow from the earth comes into their body and changes the structure of the blood to a very high quality state that causes the body to be able to repair itself and to be in a far better state for healing. And so they don't get the destruction in their joints. And you can get grounding sheets and you will notice if you sleep in them that you have a very positive benefit. 
if it's a genuine grounding in the plug that you have. You can test it with special instruments that cost about 14 bucks. But this is just to illustrate that there is relationship with all things, but that it ultimately comes first through God, and then when his people are in union with him, that affects the whole creation in a far greater way than what I am describing can even happen now when you are not involved with being exposed to all the wireless activity that can really throw your blood into a very bad and poor quality state. There needs to be the proper frequencies and vibrations. And when the Lord returns, the presence of God will overflow to the point that it covers the earth as the waters cover the seas it describes in Isaiah, so that even the lion lies down with the lamb. Now going back to our theme chapter, which is Zechariah chapter 14. We'll just go uh, to chapter, of, well, here we got I'll be there in a second. Zechariah 14, continuing with it. So we have in verse 16 this description of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now the Feast of Tabernacles is an expression of this thankfulness unto God. And no doubt the vibrations of his presence have overflowed with those that are in union and in love with him and abundant harvest. And we see that the nations that do not come up receive the opposite, drought and destruction. When they make a choice, even in the time of the millennial reign of Christ, to, for some reason or not, not want to worship God because they are deceived with their own self-seeking ways. Now, in this passage of Scripture, as we go on here, in verse 16, I want to describe another aspect of the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Feast of Tabernacles, not only were they to come with thankfulness, there's also in the Feast of Tabernacles the pouring of water like a, a river out, which represents the presence of God being poured out. There's an enormous outpouring of water, and then there's water with wine being poured out, which is symbolic of God's presence, not only bringing life like water does, but a wholeness and a joy that is unspeakable. Remember in Isaiah 25, it describes God creating on that mountain a feast of wines. This is symbolic of God creating, a, bringing forth his presence in such a wonderful way that it is better than the natural wine that can make people drunk. Rather, they are overwhelmed with the presence of God and his joy in a far greater fulfillment than any of the natural fulfillments that, that can only fulfill the outer shell of our being, which is the physical. In this passage, in the Feast of Tabernacles, there's the symbol of God's presence and of his indwelling with his people as well. And this is in the fact that they had to take branches from trees and create a booth where there was open holes in the roof where it was easy to see the stars. And instead of staying in their home, they were to stay in that booth. Now that booth represented the hardship they went through in coming from Egypt into their inheritance, which is the promised land. And what this represents is a number of things. 
if they were to create the booth so that the branches covered everything and they couldn't see anything, it would be symbolic of the spin of our own little world becoming such a hard shell in our heart, like the electron spinning around the atom to the point that it can't be broken. It's veiled. It can't see. But in Isaiah 25, it says that he will destroy the veil that is over all nations. And that is because he will break the veil that is veiling people's hearts from knowing him, which is because they've been filled with their own deceptions of self-initiation and formed their own distorted image of who God is. What does it take to break the hard shell of electrons around the nucleus of an atom? It takes a powerful negative and a powerful positive. When that happens, there's the flow of life. Likewise, when people first see the negative and recognize that God is ultimately trustworthy because his love has total integrity and is a fire of judgment against the slightest corruption that is contrary to his love. When they recognize that like the children of Israel did when they saw finally who their Messiah is as they're looking on him whom they pierced, they are realizing their undoneness like the brothers that came before Joseph, feeling so unworthy and guilty. But they're in utter awe. And so this is the ultimate negative, is to recognize that God is our life source and that without him, all we would have is destruction and death and hell. It is to be in utter awe and thankfulness that God is holy. It says give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. It is out of the holiness of God that issues wholeness. In fact, our being was created to only find wholeness in knowing and being thankful and recognizing God as our ultimate life source and that in him alone is our completeness, is our inner satisfaction. God is the ultimate source of reality because he has no corruption and death. Reality is that it is total life, totally constructive and ever enlarging unto life. It is the opposite of death. And it is immovable and unchangeable and everlasting. Reality is described in dictionaries as that which is immovable, unchangeable, and everlasting. And it is only in this quality of being and recognizing it by a deep turning in one's heart that they need God and that they are deserving of the judgment of God without, apart from his mercy. And so... Out of recognizing this ultimate, as it were, negative or foundation, which is also a symbol in the negative, a horizontal line represents foundation. Out of that, there is the recognition that there can be creativity without corruption, ultimately expressed this love of creativity ultimately expressed in God wanting a corporate bride, ultimately focused in the fact that he took judgment upon himself for you so that you could repent and be reconciled to him. And so out of that, the shell is broken and there is revelation. And this booth has open viewing of the stars. 
But there's the tendency in the deception of our own ways and independence from God for this hardening process. And it's when we initially are converted that it is undone. And then as we continue to seek to abide in him, that there is a greater and greater transformation into harmony and conformity with the ultimate perfection of God's love. And what happens in this passage here and in this illustration in the Feast of Tabernacles is a clear illustration that we should not allow our lives to be caught up with the spins of this world and these temporal things, but we should have a vision that is beyond ourselves to what is represented in seeing out of the roof of this booth the open heavens. So we look beyond ourselves, and the, there's that scripture in the Bible that says that we are pilgrims and strangers in this world and have here no continuing city, but look for our builder and maker who is God and for the city that he is creating, the new Jerusalem, where we will dwell with God. And so this booth represents pilgrimage. It represents relationship with God where our hearts are open to God, where we're not allowing hardness because we're continually spending time in prayer and fellowship and waiting on God and being in his word so that there is this reciprocation that involves this process of the negative and positive, of the circumcision of the heart, of humility and awe that results in the infusion of his presence and then out of that, a genuine joy, a genuine jubilation, a genuine adulation and praise unto God that is pure and that ever enlarges in creativity of expression and the spirit of prophecy and the various gifts of his spirit and that is extended into every aspect of all that we do as an act of worship. And in this passage of scripture, we see in the Feast of Tabernacles these symbols of significance that speak of these things. It speaks of God coming to the place where he inhabits his people. It describes this. For example, in Revelations chapter 21, it says, And I heard a great voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And it goes on to say, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. God will dwell with his people so that he inhabits them. As it says, we are builded together as living stones, as inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Let us be those that make the choice to choose life to choose the source of life, which is this love that is this ultimate, as it were, negative and positive of the universe, which is actually, a negative is actually a very big positive, but for sake of illustration, an ultimate negative and positive that allows God's love, which is this negative and positive, to hold life and to create life that is filled with energy that is so bright that people that you can find on my website at ultimatemeaning.com have described that when they died and went to heaven and resuscitated and brought back to life, 
that they saw God's being as so powerful, so great that it was beyond description. Out of his mouth were flowing creations of galaxies and worlds out of incredible love, continually going on, just beyond comprehension. That's how one atheist described it, who was converted through dying and came to know God. And you can watch that video. And so there's this relationship. God is coming for a corporate bride. He's coming for a corporate bride. And he's calling you to be part of this. And I'm just going to finish off the last part of this passage of scripture here, where it describes this holiness that I've been talking about in verses 20 and 21. It says, In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. What does holiness speak of? What I was just talking about. A purity of love that will not tolerate the slightest corruption, that allows the presence of God to vibrate forth in total creativity and harmony that affects the whole of creation. Do you know that there was a mighty powerful move of God's Spirit in a town that you can watch the documentary on, I believe it's in the Transformation One video, that some Christian bookstores hopefully are still selling. It's a powerful documentary. This town was filled with jails. It was filled with drunkenness and crime beyond your description. But there was Christians that were fasting and praying there, sometimes three days a week, and there was a woman that the whole town knew that was terribly crippled over in pain, and everyone saw her often. And they prayed for this woman. She was miraculously healed to the point that multitudes of people started coming to the meeting. Pretty soon, this town, almost everyone in the town was converted. I have a little bit of it on one of my videos on my website at ultimatemeaninglaw.com, which I think is at the last slide. You can watch it there, although it's a lot less than the documentary. But the result of this was that there was no more prisons except one prison instead of something like 25 prisons. And there was no more drunkenness. People found a relationship with God and the whole town was transformed so that the produce became so large that there's people coming from all over the world, government officials and Governments from all over the world wondering why, why is all this vegetation growing so big? It's because those people had such a deep conversion to God and came into such a close relationship with him that his presence overspilt into the creation about them. And here in this passage of scripture, this is what is happening. It is describing this holiness unto the Lord, even on the pots that are on the horses. And it says, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord. It's talking about even in people's normal things that they use, there will be the purity of his presence. In everything they do, the pot represents facilitation of what they're doing. There will be purity. It even says that when they boil them, and that's what it means, when they seethe in them, all those that sacrifice and, and do these things unto the Lord in worship. In that day, there will be no more 
Canaanite, which means trafficker in the house of the Lord. In other words, people that come and go and are not wanting to dwell with God. They're really just filled with their own ways. They will be rather walking in the ways of God. So God is calling us as his people to repent and be like this people in South America and this town, like the nation of Israel, that in our meetings come in humility and in the fear of God and, and come to recognize his awesome goodness and his holiness and the awesome greatness of his love there out of in mercy and in grace. I won't go on to share anything more for time, but God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message.